Welcome to episode number 14 in the EAA podcast series. I'm Laura Rumbly. As we publish this episode in late March 2021, we're in the early days of spring here in Europe. As days become longer and we see the first buds and blossoms erupting around us, it's easy to turn our attention to many of the ideas associated with this season, including the sowing of seeds and the active cultivation of new life. Perhaps there's a particular appeal to indulging this train of thought after the intense challenges of 2020. As we begin to look ahead to a period of renewal and revitalization, it seemed appropriate to reach out to former EAIE President Fiona Hunter for some insights in this area. Fiona is Associate Director at the Center for Higher Education Internationalization at the Università Cattolica del Sacro Cuore in Milan, Italy. She's also a co-editor of the Journal of Studies in International Education and a consultant to higher education institutions worldwide on matters of strategic management, quality assurance, curriculum innovation, and internationalization. As we'll hear in this conversation, Fiona's approach to thinking about institutional and leadership development relies heavily on an understanding of higher education institutions and actors as complex living things that, with diligence and thoughtfulness, can thrive with the help of specific kinds of cultivation. In the work you've been doing, Fiona, in the last several years, which has been focused, I know, heavily on leadership development and institutional development, you've been leaning a great deal on two key metaphors, I think. The garden, for one, and the journey, for the second. Can you tell us how these notions came to stand out so prominently for you and where you see their connection with higher education management? Okay, yes, thanks for those questions, uh, Laura, because in actual fact, a lot of the work um, that I have undertaken recently, I have done that in collaboration with a colleague of mine, Neil Sparnan. And over the years, in the work we've been doing with institutions, we have found uh, it, that it's very useful to use visuals, that they're very powerful in, in putting ideas across. And when we sat down to write a book about the work we were doing, it was then that we actually realized that many of the images we use actually come from nature. And I suppose in a sense that's quite natural <laughs> um, because we're both nature lovers, we spend a lot of time in nature, and we both find that it is a, a source of inspiration for us in our in our personal and professional lives. And you know, in in the work with the universities, we became a little bit uncomfortable with a lot of the language, say, associated with business and management that is currently used. And we felt it was often a little bit dry for higher education and that it could sound often a little unnatural, um, unhuman. And we wanted to sound more empathetic, sympathetic to the problems, the challenges they were facing. We wanted to say we can hear you, we're, we're listening, we, we understand. But at the same time, this wasn't like a deliberate process. In a sense, it was a kind of slow revelation over time that these were powerful metaphors for us. And I suppose in a way, our, our language around the journey in itself is not unique or, 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 or particularly original. You know, there's lots of change or planning processes that are illustrated as crossing challenging terrain or trying to reach a distant mountaintop. But nevertheless, we found it very effective to depict 
certain aspects of institutional management as a journey, as a as a process of transformation, you know, moving from one state to another, from the past to the future, or dare I say, from confusion to clarity. <laughs> and in the work we do, what we argue to these institutions is that you can manage a transformation process effectively, but that it's not possible or even desirable to control it completely. And I think anyone who is a hill walker or enjoys long walks of any kind can understand that because there are parts of the walk that can be more challenging than you expected or even disappointing. Sometimes there's surprises when you go for a walk. Sometimes you get lost. You know, it's just not that clear cut and that clearly defined. So I think, you know, when you're out on that long walk or when you're in a university, you always have to factor in the unexpected. You never know exactly what's ahead of you. And you're also dealing with many different people with different perspectives. And not just because they come from a different country, um, there are different cultures across the university and, and each individual has their personal experience of life that, that colors the way they, they, they see the challenges and the opportunities that they're being faced with. And that is the challenge, I think, of higher education in general. Okay, it's, um, but it's also what makes it deeply rewarding if you if you like that kind of kind of challenge. The garden, I suppose, is a little different. The garden is a very special place for anybody who loves gardening, and just like the university, you know, if we if we we love the university um, despite all its challenges. So I think the analogy of the garden actually fits quite well. And many of the terms we use come from the garden. We talk about nurturing, engendering, developing, growing. And that, I suppose, reflects our view that the management of universities is in many ways a natural process, also a very inexact process. And in fact, when we're working with leaders at whatever level in the institution, not just the people sitting at the very top of the institution, we always say that their principal role is one of creating the right conditions for people and ideas to flourish. It's ultimately leadership is about cultivation and care. And uh, I'm a novice gardener. And, and uh, as I try to hone my gardening skills, I can certainly see how that it's a process in which I never stop learning, which I get lots of things wrong. But when it does work, you know, the garden gives me such rich reward. Those are really interesting dimensions of a conversation that I think we could unpack on so many levels. Really, really fascinating to think about those aspects of the journey and the garden and what they can mean to us. I am even less of a novice gardener than I imagine you are, but from what I understand, serious gardening implies thoughtful planning, timing, arranging according to certain known factors or at least highly predictable conditions. For example, the weather that we might expect in a given season or the soil that we know that we happen to have around us. 
the COVID-19 situation, certainly threw all of that predictability up in the air over the last year, coming out of this crisis, how do you think we can make the most of some of the lessons we've learned in this experience? Particularly as international higher education administrators, how can we better em embrace the uncertainty that comes with this territory? Yeah, indeed, uh, embracing uncertainty. I think that's something we all need to learn to accept more and be ready. We, we need to be more willing to embrace uncertainty. And, you know, as I just said, like the garden, cultivating the university is about a commitment to the flourishing of others. For us, we need to be open. We need to be willing to listen and then be able to identify what needs to be done. What action do we need to, to take? As I said, gardening is about getting the conditions right so the plant can then grow and thrive. But, you know, as you said, even with the best knowledge and experience in the world, a gardener has limited capacity to actually regulate nature. Gardening is a process you can manage and mitigate to a certain extent. You can nurture and engender, but you can't control it, not 100%. As you mentioned, you can't control the weather, but the gardener will learn from a freak weather event and take action for the future. And I think one of the key points from you know, our learning process when we work with universities, which we can apply here, I think, to international higher education administrators, is that the way to embrace uncertainty is to have a robust set of principles that can guide us principles that are robust enough to guide us, but that offer sufficient flexibility at the same time, because the situations we face will always be different. The circumstances are not the same. The methods we employ will change. The actions we take will change. But we need those principles that do stay the same and can guide us through that. Because disasters happen all the time, not just global disasters. The disasters can be local disasters as well. Um, but I think if we're clear about what we want to achieve, if we know the end point of our journey, then we'll find we'll find new pathways. And you know, like you said, we are deep in a crisis right now. And yes, we know everybody's talking about reinvention and, and reimagining internationalization. All of these are necessary and we need to be very creative in that process. But to be creative, I think we also need to be optimistic about the future in order to identify that direction, that destination. I do believe that we need to use this time to undertake a critical reflection of what we do in internationalization. A really open, honest, frank, examination of, of our current practices and identify the gap that's bound to be there between rhetoric and reality, between what we declare are our goals and then what actually happens on the ground. What are we actually doing compared to what we said we would do, what appears on our website or, or in our institutional documents? Because if we don't close that gap, I don't really see how we can build a strong future or a stronger future 
for internationalization. You know, internationalization often refers to words such as collaborative, connected, inclusive. And how we understand these words has probably changed over the course of the last year. And what do they mean for us now? And are there new words that have come into our vocabulary? What does digital mean? What does virtual mean to us now? And how will that change our understanding of internationalization and of collaboration? I mean, we can't see into the future, but I think it's pretty certain that we're moving towards a future of seamless transitions between the physical and the virtual. So what will that mean for internationalization? And, and how can we use it to our advantage in a way that internationalization actually becomes more impactful than it is right now. And I know that can sound like a very challenging uh, endeavor right now. And it is, I mean, it most likely is rethinking, reimagining internationalization for the future is no easy task. And yet we know that the foundations of new models are often developed, you know, the, the groundwork is done in the darkest days of any, of any crisis. So that is why we have to hold on to our optimism as well. If I were to say anything to higher education institutions right now, it would be that. You see this also as a window of opportunity to reflect on the role of internationalization in your institution. How do you want to reposition it? How do you want to make it a core element, a fundamental element of institutional life? One that really does drive quality and make a difference. Make a difference in the institution, but also in the communities that each university serves locally or globally. So to that point about the, the global context, you are very alert to higher education in the, in the global context. I know much of your life and your professional focus has been in the European context, but you're much more broadly active in global higher education than, than that. You're aware, of course, of the, the booming number of students, for example, in developing countries and the creation of new higher education institutions to cater for them. How do you see internationalization contributing to fertilizing the soil, if we extend the gardening metaphor, where these new universities are growing? Laura, I think there's only one way to do that, and it's through partnerships for mutual benefit. Whatever you're doing, it has to be in partnership and there has to be mutual benefit. And I've always been you know, really inspired by the work of Susan Buck Sutton and her three dimensions of, of, of partnership. Um, I think she offers a really aspirational model that speaks to the situation that we find ourselves in right now, because one of the first points she makes is around equity in partnerships. And this is crucial if we're dealing with um, you know, emerging economies, because inevitably there will be partnerships with different levels of resources. And that can lead to um, inequality in the partnership. But what she argues is that inequality in resources um, should not mean inequality in 
setting the goals and making decisions around the partnership. So I think equity and partnership, absolutely fundamental. The second point she makes, which I find, you know, really aspirational for our future, and I don't think we think about it enough yet, and that is that typically when we think of our own improvement, our own growth as a university, we often see it disconnected from the growth of the partner or from the growth of other institutions that could benefit from that partnership. You know, she talks, when she talks about a mutual benefit, as I said, she has these three levels. And the first one is the one we're all familiar with. You know, it's an exchange agreement. You know, we exchange, it's transactional, she says. You know, we're, we're exchanging students or we're exchanging resources or, or staff or whatever. The second level is one that a lot of us are familiar with too, because it's a collaboration where, it's the partnership that produces something new. So that might be, you know, the joint program, project, joint research, whatever, but something that couldn't have happened without the partnership. But it's that third level that I think really invites us to think differently about partnership and is particularly relevant, I think, to the question you asked. Because she says partnerships that generate benefits for a global system of higher education, one that is transformational. Um, so how could we, you know, through our partnerships, provide benefits beyond the partnership itself? And that might even be being more inclusive in the partnership, perhaps bringing in um, institutions that don't have a lot of experience in international collaboration or simply thinking as we develop these new ideas, these new products, these new services, how can it serve beyond the limitations of the partnership itself? I mean, we always talk about, oh, we need global collaboration to solve global problems, but what if we rethought our partnerships in a way that we really built that in to the way we were de developing partnerships? And it, which could then, I think, have a strong impact on our students as well, not just on the staff who are involved in the realization of these projects, but setting an example to the, the students coming through the universities about what it really does mean to be a, a global citizen, to have a sense of global responsibility and, and see the value in being connected to others in the world. And because it's only through these connections that we will be able to move forward as people, as institutions, as countries. This crisis has led to this huge leap forward in technology. We're all using technology so much more. And I think we've all discovered how powerful these networks of connectivity are, but they can become technology can really enhance collaboration as well. I think it gives us an opportunity to collaborate more, not less, even if we're still fighting with the challenges of coping with, with technology right now. But I think it offers us endless potential for better collaboration that can lead to bigger change. Super exciting to think about. Mm -hmm. So some might argue that a successful gardener is associated with a set of virtues. What are the virtues of the ideal international higher education administrator, in your opinion, Fiona? Okay, that's an interesting one, because 
when I think of the word virtue, it actually sounds quite old fashioned, doesn't it? Um, but perhaps it's a word that we need to go back to because I think, you know, for, for the Greeks, virtue was also about excellence. And that's something we're all striving for in higher education, even though I think it's always important to define what excellence means for you in, in, in your institution um, and then think about how internationalization can make a contribution to that. But what do I think the virtues of the international higher education administrators are? Um, infinite patience, <laughs> um, undying passion, just like the gardener. Because in my mind, patience is actually linked to hope, belief, optimism, waiting for better weather and for the right time to, to make the change happen. Um, and I think if we're passionate, that ensures that we do bring the care and the commitment and the energy to, to what we're doing. And I mentioned at the beginning that I think, you know, an international higher education administrator does need a framework of reference. Uh, I think that's often missing. You know, people are busy doing the job, but they don't really have a framework of reference. So I, I do think our international higher education administrator needs to be both principled and clear-sighted. They need to know the journey they're on. They can see the mountaintop. They've got a set of principles that can guide them in their decision-making, help them make choices, but also face the challenges and opportunities along the way. These are, of course, maybe these are more professional skills rather than virtues. So let's say these professional skills would need to be underpinned by virtuous behavior. And I think there are some that spring to mind quite naturally in internationalization. If we're talking about or we're seeking to achieve this exchange among equals, then I think we need to be ethical in our dealings and humble another really old fashioned word, humble in our relationships. And then there are some other words. And again, I'm thinking they do sound a little bit old fashioned. Maybe, maybe virtues are, I don't know. Maybe virtues are typically old fashioned words. I think of prudence, mm -hmm. persistence and tenacity. The journey is a long and difficult one. We know that. We need to be prudent in our choices. We will make mistakes. We need to learn from them and change our strategies, adjust them if they, if they fail. We need to be persistent because we know we'll face resistance, setbacks, advers adversity on our way. And we need to be tenacious, I think, in, in these struggles that we face, like right now, and be seeking untiringly for, for solutions. Fiona, it is always such an inspiration to chat with you. And our discussion about gardening has put me in mind of, you know, the actual physical ground beneath our feet. And with all of the digital communication that we've been doing over the last year, I have to say, I cannot wait to set my feet on the ground next to you somewhere and have a <laughs> conversation face to face. But how lucky we are to have these technologies to connect us in the meantime. And to thank you again for spending your, your time with us to chat about these issues today. It's been an absolute 
pleasure, Laura. And yes, I think we're all looking forward to the times where, yes, we can seamlessly transition between the physical and the virtual and not live exclusively in the virtual, which is where we are right now. So thank you again. That was Fiona Hunter, Associate Director at the Center for Higher Education Internationalization at the Università Cattolica del Sacro Cuore. Her reflections on the many ways we can cultivate our way forward offer some great food for thought as we move into spring 2021 and hopefully toward greater stabilization of our sector following the pandemic challenges of the last year. If you're interested in exploring some of the themes covered by Fiona in our conversation, the session notes for this podcast offer some suggestions for further reading. You might also want to check out the EAE blog, which frequently includes analysis and discussion of strategic management in international higher education. New blogs are posted every week. And of course, our next podcast episode airs in just two weeks' time. Meanwhile, although March 2021 is rapidly drawing to a close, there is still time this month to submit nominations for the 2021 EAE Awards. Don't hesitate to nominate an inspirational leader or general all-around internationalization superstar for one of our awards. For example, if your institution has successfully implemented a creative new program or project that helped overcome the challenges brought on by the COVID-19 pandemic, we'd love to hear about it. So don't hesitate to nominate your organization for the EAE Award for Excellence in Internationalization. You can find more information about the awards by visiting our website, www.eaie.org. Thank you, as always, for listening to the EAE podcast. We hope you'll subscribe on your favorite listening app so you don't miss a single episode and that you'll like and share us on social media far and wide. And if you are really enjoying the podcast, please leave a review so more people can find us. For now, all good wishes to you from the EAIE.